several days of, of scrambling. I got adjusted with the pack and the terrain and I was, I was just comfortable. I mean, I had exposed class four or low class five terrain every day. There was terrain every day that you, that you can't, you cannot make a mistake. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely, and uh, you you probably noticed we didn't have an episode on Thursday, and that's because it was Thanksgiving. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. There's a lot to be thankful for. Uh, You know, it it, it is good to keep our lives and even this year in perspective that by all accounts, we, you know, we, for the most part, we have food to eat, we have a shelter and uh, a place to, to lay our head at night and by many accounts, we're very, very blessed. So I hope you realize that, and I hope you take uh, you don't take that for granted. Um, today's episode is someone who who learns the uh, <laughs> who had definitely learned the value of those small little luxuries and small little things to be thankful for. Uh, Brandon Joy recently you, you, we we recorded this a few months ago actually, but he, he had just gotten off the trail five weeks prior, so he's still processing this uh, really incredible adventure of climbing Montana's highest 50 mountains all in one single trip. They happen to all be in the same area, so it kind of worked out for him. But if you'd like to find out more about Brandon, you can you can find uh, some links to his social media um, and some articles he's done uh, in the show notes. But yeah, he's, he's super reflective. You can tell he's a deep thinker, had a lot of time to think out there. And uh, def- definitely excited, def- definitely a great um, reflection. So you're going to learn a lot. We also talk about some practical stuff around gear and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll let him tell his story and quit trying to tell you here. So uh, enjoy the episode and you'll be hearing from us again on Thursday. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thanks for tuning in again. Today, we've got a really cool story. I'm actually very excited to hear this uh, just because it's it's such a crazy idea to climb all of Montana's top 50 mountains. And uh, yeah, we, we get to talk to Brandon, who just really got off the trip not that long ago and uh, still processing it. But Brandon, welcome to the show. How's it going? Yeah, thanks, Mason. It's a uh... It's an honor to be here. It's going good. Yeah, man. So, so you're traveling. You said right now, taking some time off, and you're coming at us from the road. W- when did you get off? When did you get off the route? I finished the route on August 29th. So I think it's it's about five weeks post the project ending. How does it feel five weeks later? <laughs> it's interesting now. Now the project is just a series of memories. I felt that essentially as soon as it as soon as it ended, you know, my, uh, I had some family kind of pick me up at the end and, and we camped out that night and I was just looking up at the mountains and, and realized this thing is over and, and they're phenomenal memories, but it's, it's a, it's a huge shift in, in your day-to-day activities and in what you're doing, what, how you approach your day. It's, it's all different. Still feels like that now, 
and and I'm just taking some time to to try and reflect and understand what was going through my head and yeah, I guess what the future looks like. Hmm. You know, it's uh, it it is weird. There's it, I, I compare it to a wave that's coming at you on the beach. Um, you know, it's coming at you, coming at you, coming at you, and you see it, and then you're get bracing for it, and you take it on, and it's short, it's intense. And then it's just gone in an instant and you're left kind of like, okay, now what? And inevitably another wave is going to come, but you're just kind of on the backside of this wave, just sitting there processing what just happened to you. Certainly. And, and it's much more than the 18 days that I was out there. I mean, I, I pretty, pretty dedicated to my training and I was preparing for a 200 mile foot race this, this fall called the Bigfoot 200, which is in Washington, and with COVID, you know everything got swept away, or most things, and and this was the case here. So you know I had all of this training, and I and I had developed all of this fitness, and I was ready for something big. And when the race was canceled, I I just said, hey, I'll just design something of my own. But it's still part of that massive wave that's coming towards you in this massive build. And then ultimately this incredible and and daunting singular project, which you're just out on your own. I have a suspicion that COVID is going to give us a lot of um, adventures to talk about in coming years, just because it's such a such a distinction between like before and after, like pre-COVID and post-COVID, and it's going to cause people to, like you just to take on these giant projects. Where did this idea come from for doing the highest summits uh, in Montana, the 50 highest summits? Was it something you were already thinking about doing, but just needed the time or needed the reason to go after it? Or did you just really put it together when you found out you couldn't do your ultra? Yeah, it was, it was really once I realized that the ultra was not happening I started brainstorming what I what I could be doing and I went anywhere from thinking about doing the Arizona Trail or or the Great Divide um you know bikepacking style Justin Simone who you had on your show was a big inspiration as well as another guy Nate Bender who established the Montana 12ers route mm. and he did that in one push in 2018. And I guess I wanted to do something initially that had bicycle. I wanted to do multi-sport, some multi-dimensional challenge, something that was a bit more comprehensive than, than getting on a flagged course and something that someone else sets the structural framework for in which you just test your cardiovascular engine and you're at the start line and you're revving and then, and you just go guns blazing. It's it's fun and exciting, but I wanted. I've been in my. I've lived in Montana for. I went to college in Montana, and and have spent majority of my time in Montana since, and developed a bunch of different skills: backpacking, backcountry, navigating, rock climbing, running. I you know, I've, I've kind of played around with a lot of different things and. I just wanted to be able to design something that would test everything. And then I started looking at, well, I thought, well, Nate, Nate's done the, the 12ers. 
And yeah, I could repeat that. It'd be awesome. But I wanted to do something solo. I wanted to do something fully on my own and self-supported. So no external help. I didn't want to rely on anyone for anything because it was kind of a, I don't know, a rebellion against being, mm, what's the word? It was a rebellion against being, having my schedule dictated by these races and, Mm. you know, sanctioned events, you know, permits, you know, state regulations for COVID and, and, and group size, you have all of these things coming into play. And I just wanted, I mean, it'd be great to have some family or friends come out and, and give me oatmeal at trailhead here and there, but I wanted to do something too long to where the logistics would be too extreme. And I had five weeks to plan this trip. It was, it was, a, it was almost just planning it. I thought was a success in and of itself. Cause I had to plan the entire route. And then I also had to plan gear and all the food. And I set four caches in the Beartooths a week before I started. And, but the Nate Bender, you know, the, the Twelvers, that would be an awesome project, but I figured it would take me just a, a bit over a week and I wanted to do something longer. So that's really was a deciding factor for me to start looking into the top 50. And I did some research and found it's quite surprising that all of the tallest 50 peaks in Montana are in one mountain range. That's pretty wild, man. That How big of an area do you know? Because obviously, you know, it's in one area, in one range, but that can, that can be pretty big. So the mountains are in the Absaroka Beartooth Wilderness. It's just on the north boundary of Yellowstone National Park. And if I remember correctly, it's just under a million acres, 900,000 and change, which for me, it's perspective wise, pretty difficult to, to conceptualize 900,000 acres. But I can tell you it takes, it would take like an entire day to drive around the mountain range. It's huge. That's awesome, man. That's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it and it, it is it's just crazy how, how that, that one range dominates the top, you know, top quite a few, man. It's that, and it says the Madison range starts to see some higher peaks as well. But, you know, you know what, what, why this route? What were some of the ideas that were going through your head to make you go after the, the top 50? Was 50 a number you just had in your head, you know, versus, I don't know, 25 or even 100? Was it based on time? Um, how did you come up with that? Yeah, it was it was sort of based on time. I wanted to do something probably between two and four weeks. And as I mentioned, I, I wanted a multi-dimensional challenge, something that would test me from a lot of different angles. So I looked at first looked at doing the Montana Eleveners, which I think there are eighty-three or so, and those are spread out over six different ranges. So between the 50 tallest, 50th tallest peak and the 83rd tallest peak, there's quite a spread and there would be a significant amount of biking and it would just make, and then I think that still 70 of those top 83 peaks are in the Beartooths. And so the more I looked at that, it's just, it's a logistical nightmare to try to figure out in five weeks. 
And I think it would also be a two month project once I started mapping out the biking. So I tried to consolidate it down. I said, okay, well, what about the top 50 and what kind of climbing is required? And where, you know, are there any trails that can be utilized? And really there aren't, I mean, there, there are two main through trails. They're more like horseshoe shaped that go through the Beartooths. There are very, very little, very few trails that go through at least the Beartooth side. And the mountains are fairly undocumented as well. I mean, I, I know in Colorado, you, you know, there are books dedicated to, say, the 14ers, right? right. You know, the, I think there are 58. <laughs> is that right? Uh, between 54 and 58, depending yeah. on how you define them. But yes, high 50s. Yeah. And, yeah, you're right. There's, 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 there's the main guidebook, then there's tons of other guidebooks about them. And you're not going to be probably not going to be alone on any of them all summer and even in the winter you're going to have folks up there so yes it's not by any means an isolated wilderness experience and this range that you're talking about man you're not kidding it's it's out there man there it's really out there yeah yeah and, and when i came back so i basically just looked at topo topographic maps and Google Earth. Those were my main references to to figure out what kind of route was good. Because even even if I look at, say, Inhibit, Mount Inhibit on Summit Post, there are multiple routes to get to the summit. But I might not necessarily be coming from the closest trailhead or the easiest access point. I'm coming from the peak prior and I'm going on the ridge line in the other direction. So I and a lot of the stuff is class two, three, and four climbing. And I just it was too much information to try to to try and think or try to figure out people's notes where and it everything gets so vague and arbitrary because it's all rock. I mean, I think tree line ends at around ninety five hundred feet. And I figured I was around eleven thousand feet on average throughout the entirety of the 18 days. So I was 1500 feet above tree line. Everything is just rocks. I was on, it's just, I, it was, it was felt like I was on the moon and there are no trails. There's no, there are no, not, there's not a single trail to any summit. And when I came back, I cross-referenced the route that I did versus what's available online. And I figured that, on my trip, I navigated 31 significant lines, slopes, cliff faces, or ridge lines. 31 unique things that just aren't out there. And then 16 of the 50 mountains, there is no information on online about. I mean, no routes, no Jeez. do's and don'ts, n no close access points, no, hey, by the way, this is a class five mandatory uh, type of type of spire and and there were multiple of multiple of multiple peaks were all I could see from Google Earth is that they were these giant spires coming out of ridge lines that had a two thousand foot vertical drop onto a glacier on one side and the other side it was just the 
I don't know what takes the images on, on Google Earth, but it's just blurry. I mean, a couple of the spires just looked impossible. And, and honestly, I thought the trip was pretty ridiculous and borderline impossible. But those are the types of things that I really find satisfying. And I derive, I feel like help develop me. If I went out and knew that this thing would go and I knew it was possible, it, it wouldn't be the same. I mean, you have to just just toe the line and and give it everything you've got. And there was a lot that went wrong out there. And and honestly, up until I got through probably peak 40, I was really discouraged because there were a couple of these spires that I saw on Google Earth that, that looked unclimbable. Like, and I was in, I didn't have, I was unroped. I didn't have a harness. I had no climb, you know, no chalk for my hands. And I was in running shoes. I had one pair of shoes the entire time. So I was doing all this, you know, traversing of the landscape and technical climbing and down climbing, descending with a 30 pound pack and in running shoes. So I had to be very careful about what I was on in a lot of these routes. I don't know if any, I mean, who knows if people have touched the rock out there, you know, it could be virgin ancient. It's just crumbling rock and you have to test every hold. You can't make a mistake. Yeah. Brandon, that is, uh, I mean, I'm just looking at images right now of this area and I mean, just, it's such a crazy idea to go after and for you to, say that you were discouraged the whole time that's so fascinating because it's it's obviously an incredibly difficult achievement to even think about doing and then to plan in five weeks and to prepare and you you said you put out food caches i saw pictures it was like in five gallon buckets how did you do that what did you do what was what was in those what kind of food did you pack and and what what did you carry with you the whole time uh what did i carry in terms of food or gear. I've been told that I don't ask enough about that, so I want to be sure I ask about it. It's like people okay. people hear these inspiring stories and I forget to ask like what physically did you have with you cuz people are interested in that. And uh, I, I whereas I just want to hear like why? Why did you do this? <laughs> so yeah. yeah. No, certainly. So in terms of food, my general nutrition strategy, I guess first off, I didn't have a stove. I was trying to go as light as possible, and I figured that having warm water or having that capability was m more of a comfort and not a necessity, although it would have been really nice to be able to boil water because I then had to find running water or try to collect snow from the top of glaciers or snow fields in a two-liter reservoir and then hope it's sunny enough to then melt it over time. So I didn't have a stove. So everything was non, I'll say non-perishable. I guess everything will perish after a certain amount of time, but you know, all kinds of nut mixes, trail mix. And I took quite a bit of beef jerky and I ate a lot of candy. I was, I definitely got my sweet tooth on when I was out there and I drank, I would say I, I drank about a quarter of my calories as well between two different powders. One is called Ultragen. Uh, I think it's by, 
I don't, I don't know who makes it. It's ultra gen and it's, and it's, it's a recovery drink. That's roughly three quarters carbohydrate to one quarter protein. And that was really good to use during the day. And I can, you can really pound calories just in a 16 ounce collapsible bottle, just fill it up with some water, dump four five, 600 calories in it and just slam it versus trying to eat that much. I would have to eat like an entire bag, big bag of beef jerky to try to get that same caloric intake. And then the protein takes longer for your body to utilize. So during the day I was going a lot more carbohydrate based and I had a bunch of different bars and I did have some gels like honey stinger. They have the honey packets and, and a different brand has it's, it's syrup, maple syrup. So I, I went with that approach in terms of food, some granola in the morning. I took some powdered milk to try to mix in the water with the granola to make it a little bit more palatable. And then peanut butter. I, I took a one pound, each cash had a one pound jar of peanut butter. But essentially, all of my food and all of the caches, each cache had roughly 25,000 calories and some basic medical resupplies. Each cache had a power bank, 20,000 milliamp. And I also brought a small solar panel as a backup because I had a Garmin, I had my watch and I had my phone, which I was usually mostly using to navigate. And a backup cable here or there, that was another stressful point is you have if you, it's super easy to leave a cable somewhere or cord charging cord. And if you do that, or you leave it out overnight and some, some critter comes by and choose it, choose it up. You're going to, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a problem because I have no resupply. I can't being self-supported. I can't call a friend and say, Hey, SOS, I need this cord because I can't charge my phone. I lost it. So I had to be very attentive, even as fatigue was just piling on. And regardless of the situation, if there's just, it, there's all types of things that came up to just put additional stress, you know, you have daylight issues. Um, where am I going to camp? Incoming weather. Um, so you just have to stay super focused the entire time. So that's kind of overall the nutrition strategy. And then as far as gear, I took an Ultimate Direction Fast Pack 35 liter, which worked great. I took a pair of ski poles, telescoping ski poles. I didn't want to take carbon fiber because that breaks too easily. I, I mean, I needed something to really withstand a beating, and the ski poles worked great. They're a little bit heavier, but it's all good. I took enough clothes and my sleep system. Uh, the combination of those things, I, I was prepared to withstand a blizzard because the Beartooths can get that any time of year. And I, I needed to be prepared for anything. And I needed to be prepared to hunker down. You know, if I'm up at 12,000 feet and some storm rolls in and, and the rock gets iced over, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be moving when the rock's in bad condition. So I was just willing to wait it out. And that's why. Also, I gave myself 30 days to do this thing in case of, of injury I needed or, you know, this was far beyond anything I'd experienced from a physical 
and mental fatigue standpoint. So I had no idea halfway through if I, I, I might just need a couple of days off. You know, I might have a strained muscle. Keely's tendon is just yelling at me. And, and so I just gave my, myself some quite a bit of a buffer. And I guess in terms of other gear, like I said, I had that small solar panel and medical supplies, some basic fire starter. I didn't bring a water filter either. <laughs> no water filter and no stove. Did you just, just drink what you found? Yeah, so the the water was another complication out there. Because it is a high route, you're high. And there's not water necessarily on ridge lines. There are each day I found myself waking up and crawling out of my bivy, probably still in my sleeping bag because it was freezing. And I'd open my phone and try to figure out where I was going to go that day. I'd assess my fatigue, how much water I had, where I thought the next possible water source was, and what the weather was doing. I, I had all these, how much food I had, what, how many peaks until the next cache, and how I could spread that out evenly. And the water, there were some high alpine lakes, and you can kind of, and there's also tons of glaciers out there. But if you're at anywhere on the glacier or above it, there's not running water. And so it just became try me trying to utilize my knowledge and experience being out there to best predict where I could find running water, which I did take directly from glacial runoff, snowmelt, and high alpine streams. And then every once in a while, there would just be this beautiful pool or series of just water that comes out of nowhere. I'm like, I don't know how this is here or even seeps in the mountain where there were a couple times that I was kind of desperate. Uh, some days I'd wake up and I'd have a lot of water for the day. And then eight hours later, they still don't have any water supply and it's just baking hot. There's no trees, no cloud cover. And and it's, you know, it starts to get a little bit stressful. And then I see, you know, I'm, as I'm hiking along, the rocks below me start sloughing and, and moving beneath me. And then I see that the, the dirt is wet and there's water trickling. So I would just, I was kind of caveman style. I would just drop my pack and try and develop some small pool or something that I could, I could get water from. Thankfully, that didn't happen too often, but, you know, before I, I also, I on-sighted the entire route. So I'd only climbed one of these 50 peaks before. Had I gone out and done scouting missions, I would have been able to identify these unpredictable water sources and the satellite imagery that I had downloaded for offline maps was probably in, in early winter or late spring. So there was a lot of snow cover. So I still, and even if it was in high summer, I wouldn't have been able to identify these small pools of water. This is just crazy. Getting cra There's so many things I want to ask you about. This is unbelievable. You just showed up and, and made the route a as you went. Obviously you knew where the 50 peaks you wanted to hit were, but 
Did, did you did you know generally obviously a list of the peaks you wanted in order and then as you made your way towards that peak made decisions on where to go exactly yeah when i i set sort of a backbone just a a, a framework for what i would be doing out there based on the topographic maps I'm, I'm like well this looks like a more okay well i'll try to go up this rocky whatever this is everything is all rocks so you can't really it's not well this area has trees and this area has rocks so i can make a, a decision based on the terrain i mean it's all rocks so i would try to then choose just based off the topographic imagery and i think okay well i'll get up to the saddle it looks like the the average slope or the the vertical gain per you know horizontal distance is more digestible. So I, I'd go up to the saddle via my initial planned route and then go up the, some ridge line to the summit. But the very first peak I did, I got to the base of it and I saw the scree field that I would go up and I thought that looks loose. That looks, I mean, it really, it just looked loose and not super interesting. And I, I looked directly at the peak and there was a direct route. I mean, it, I wouldn't say most people probably wouldn't look at it and be like, oh, that's a good way to go. But from where I was, I just looked and it was more technical and it had more solid rock. And I just went directly to the summit from where I was. And I found myself doing that for almost every peak. So as I was on one peak, I would be looking to the next series of peaks and cross-referencing my planned route versus what I saw. And oftentimes, I would say definitely in the first third and up to the first half, I was making decisions on my route based on what looked more interesting and what looked maybe a little more adventurous. You know, I, I had that adventure because I was primed. I was I had my several days of of scrambling. I got adjusted with the pack in the terrain and I was I was just comfortable I mean, I had exposed class four or low class five terrain every day. There was terrain every day that you that you can't you cannot make a mistake. So how was that? How were you processing that? Was that, you know, I've, I've only been in a handful of situations where it's like, OK, this is, takes absolute focus. And when I get down from that, um, you know, without a harness or anything, it, it's really taxing. It really takes a while to kind of get over it uh, and to just realize what, what you, you know, how, how risky it was. How did you deal with that on a daily basis? Was it taking a toll on you? In the first half, I felt fine. And I actually enjoy, I, I, I really enjoyed the technical climbing. I felt really strong. Even you know, 30, 40, or 50,000 feet of vertical gain on my legs and descent. And that I will also mention that the trail, or sorry, the, the, the route was almost entirely off trail. Like I, I think it totaled to be 195 miles and 10 miles were on trail. So it's off trail the entire time. And then just choosing lines and just analyzing one route to one summit to the next and sometimes i'd get turned around and get bottlenecked into glaciers and you know there's just gloss ice and i i can't do that i don't have crampons it's if you if you try to cross you'll 
and you fall, you'll have a bad time. So the first half I was, my, my confidence and my strength was just sky high and, and the competency to be able to do that and handle that technical terrain. What I realized, and I did a couple climbs out there that were very bold. And in one case on day six, I approached Sky Pilot. It was an out and back. So I was able to kind of put gear in in one place to go do Sky Pilot because I knew I was coming back to that same exact spot. And I got to the base of Sky Pilot. I was going south and in the route, the intended route that I knew would be reasonable would be to horseshoe around and then go up kind of the scree goalie and plateau summit to I get pla- you know, it's a plateau-ish sloped plateau to the summit. And I got to the base of the north end of this mountain, and it was like a it was a just a 500, four or five hundred foot vertical cliff. And I looked at it and I just, I just saw a line immediately. And and I just, I went for it and I could really only see the first, the contour and the texture and, and the anticipated route of that first hundred feet or so vertical feet. And then beyond that, I just, I was piecing everything together and, and, you know, pulling rocks off the wall you know, trying to kick this gravelly kitty litter off ledges. This was the day, I think day six was the day that my fingers really started getting cut up and bleeding from the constant climbing. And this was the climb that really sparked the the bleeding frenzy that would plague my, the the rest of my trip, basically. Uh, And almost, I think my fingers were one thing that really almost took me out of the project. I mean, I was, I, I, the, the cuts were getting big enough. I, I was concerned about infection and I had, all I had was duct tape, uh, which I used and I duct tape all my fingers. We can get into that in a minute. I know we're getting sidetracked, but basically I got to the summit. It was this super aesthetic, just rush and just, just a violent flow state, just the most, I mean, pure focus. I mean, when you're climbing in general, it doesn't have to be on sighting some, some route, crazy route somewhere on your own. But when you're climbing, uh, Mark Twight, famous American mountaineer, I read his book recently, Kiss or Kill. And he has a quote in there that really resonated with me. That was a reflection of pretty much my entire trip. And he said, the soloist must realize that he is 100% responsible. There is, I can, and I can't. There is no, I will try. 98% means hitting the ground. So when you're up there, you're, you're, at, you're at least at 100%. And when I was at the summit, I, I took a video at every summit and photo just to documentation and also just for memories. But in my photo, I basically said, that was an incredible climb, but I can't be doing that every day. Like there was this immediate taxation. I mean, I was on the, I was on the, the vertical cliff and at, at, there were points where, I mean, I had three, two, three or 400 feet where if, if I made a mistake, that's how far I would fall before I hit the deck. 
So you're very aware of that. And, and I felt super solid on that entire climb. And I, I was very focused on the technicality of the terrain. And before I went, I was out local. I, I live in Helena, Montana. We have kind of a local crag on our, on our, on Mount Helena, some limestone. And I went up there and, and practiced some soloing on some easier terrain. So I just went up and, and was climbing things that I would never normally climb because they're not challenging with climbing shoes, chalk, and someone belaying you. But I went up there and I started stripping myself of this climbing gear to where I was not using chalk and I was in my running shoes. And so I was just free soloing up these 50 or 60 foot cliffs to get a feel for what that would be like when I experienced that with that specific gear in the Beartooths. Wow. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> It's an, it's, it's to think you, you put all this together in, in five weeks is astounding. Can I ask you this, you know, did, did you run across a lot of other people? And when you, if you did, what was that like? I know you were out there 18 days, but as all adventures talk about a week on an adventure feels like a month. So I'm sure if you went time without seeing people, it was a joy to see them. Certainly. Yeah. I saw people probably every handful of days and the few, there was one day where I saw probably 90% of the people, which I was on the beaten path, one of these through hikes through the, through the Beartooths. And it was, it got to be overwhelming. I mean, I was walking along this trail, all of my fingertips were duct tape. I probably smelled like a dumpster fire and just, yeah, I, I just felt out of, you know, people are out hiking, families and and screaming kids. And I mean, it really wasn't that bad, but it was kind of sensory overload because I'm doing this intense project and and it's it's hard for people to relate. And I talked to a few people and they were excited, but ultimately I just needed to keep making progress. And the experiences that I did have with people where I really got to kind of sit down uh, and, and, and talk, and especially people that knew the Beartooths, those moments were particularly special. And just before Granite, Granite Peak is the tallest in Montana, and it's, it's a high point. So there are a lot of people that like to go out and climb it for that reason. It's also, it's a, it's just a beautiful climb. It's low class five, it's exposed. People, it gives people a flavor for, for that type of terrain. And it's a really good challenge. It's, it's, it's a not an easy task. So there was a guy, there's a guided group and some guides. I knew where these people normally are at the base of granite. And I went in and, and just started talking with them. And, and I had, I mean, that was probably as far as just a human interaction to like sit down with, with some serious climbers and be able to share some of the experiences was was very memorable. And then one of those people, one of those climbers in that group, uh, worked for the company but wasn't a guide. And so her and I actually climbed granite the next day, and and then did the West Granite Traverse, which is it's significantly more spicy than the granite climb itself, and it's mostly down climbing. And it doesn't see a lot of traffic, so you're dealing with a lot of that loose, 
ancient rock. And those were the only two summits that I saw a human the entire trip. What what an experience. What a wilderness experience. And, and, and you know, speaking of COVID and, and being out there and, and social distancing and preparing, I, despite all the preparing and all the precautions and all the experience early on, uh, you had you 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 hurt your ankle pretty bad. C- could you tell us about that and how you were processing and how how you dealt with that? The ankle injury was quite discouraging. I was actually on the beaten path. It was the flattest, easiest terrain I had. I had navigated the entire trip. I've, I had five miles, five of my ten trail miles, and I was just just hiking along having a jolly time reach for a granola bar in my pot in my the front pouch of my backpack and I just hit the ground and I just had a searing pain in my ankle I knew what had happened I just stepped on a rock wrong I just this this brief this moment of complacency thinking I was safe because I was on the trail and my ankle is pretty messed up I mean oh, that had to be frustrating oh it was inc- I was I was very upset with myself for allowing that to happen. I mean, I was a hundred miles in at this point and about 50,000 vertical gain. And to, and I immediate, there was immediate swelling. My mobility re- of the ankle reduced significantly. And I was able to move my ankle or sorry, my foot up and down, but any sort of side to side movement would drop me in pain. It was, and so I had to re, I, I basically restructured the way that I moved and that I was leading everything with my strong leg, strong foot and putting that, putting the risk there because when you're on rocks, everything wants to move. Nothing's really that stable and just being able, at least I was halfway in. So I was very well tuned in to the geologic kinesiology of the areas that I was in. And, and then I just dragged, not quite literally, but kind of dragged my, my trailing foot and leg behind as an anchor and just was very ultra cognizant, ultra focused on, on making sure that every step was completely solid. And then I was working with my coach. I had a Garmin, so I'm like texting back and forth. I have a phenomenal coach and working through some different techniques, tips, tricks, whatever you want to call them to keep getting blood flow back to that area and try to reduce incoming damage. Like I was grabbing snow and putting that in my two liter reservoir from the top of glaciers or, or snow pack and using that as an ice pack, elevating the leg doing ankle rolls at night and in the morning before I got up to help sort of just to get blood flow to that area. So you're not standing up on something that's essentially suffocated. And I honestly, in retrospect, and I was still doing big days, like really big days, five. I mean, I, the, the entire trip, I averaged 6,000 vertical gain and 6,000 loss per day on average, which some days was more, I think up to 10 or 11,000. And some days, you know, when I hit a cash point, I probably had a half day and I maybe had two or 3,000. 
So I was still doing huge days. And in retrospect, I think that 20% of the reason my ankle healed over the course of the next six days, 20% was because of these tips and tricks you know, that, that I had up my sleeve and working with my coach and 80%, I think was just luck. I don't, or just some, some grace of some, something. I just, I don't have an explanation for it, but I, I didn't slow down. I was just extra cognizant. And again, I mean, this is just another aspect of, of, of mental stress that goes into what we were talking about earlier. And it wasn't just the climbing, it was finding water, it was watching the weather, the California wildfire smoke rolled in for the middle third of that trip. And so I, I was blind to incoming weather and I got, I got mauled out there by weather systems. And, and sometimes I couldn't even see them coming or I couldn't see where they were going. And when the smoke rolled in, I also, as I mentioned, was on, I was scouting out my future lines from points where I had a good vantage point. Well, with every, with this, with this thick smoke that rolled in, I couldn't do that. And so there's this additional, so then I have to get closer and closer before I can actually see the mountain clearly enough to make coherent and smart decisions. And then by the time, I think granite was around peak 27. So in the beaten path, I must've been, that must've been around peak 22 or 23. So all of, all of this stress was building up and it got to a point after, after the 40th peak, I was just, I was simply exposure fried, exposure from the rock climbing and exposure, just being, just having this extreme isolation, not having anyone to talk things through with to say, you know, Hey, is this a good idea? And they're like, no, that's a terrible idea. Why are you, you know, why would you suggest that? No one to check in with your fatigue, to think about where we could find, I mean, water, I mean, all of these things, wildlife, it's prime grizzly bear habitat, mountain lion, I followed mountain lion tracks over, over an 11,500 foot pass. So you have all of these different things swirling around. And after 40 peaks, after 14 days, I was just, I couldn't handle it. And this is something far beyond what I've experienced in the past is, and it's also far more intense and comprehensive, as I mentioned, but I started making decisions that I would avoid technical terrain. And instead I would add on thousands and thousands and thousands of feet of elevation gain and loss. So I'd get to a point I'd, you know, make a summit and then I head down some slope field or to a saddle of, of some sort. And then I see two options in front of me. There's a ridge line that I have no information on that extends maybe half or three quarters of a mile. Or I can descend this steep, loose, boulder slope with a 30-pound bag, two to 3,000 vertical feet before then I traverse that horizontal half or three quarters mile. And then I have to go up two to 3,000 vertical feet to get to where this ridge line would have popped me out in the first place. And I started getting on, uh, I was on, at one point I was on this ridge line and it wasn't even that technical of terrain. It was exposed, but it wasn't technical. 
and I just felt my legs just wobbly. I mean, my, my fingers at this point had been just cut up and constantly my fingertips. I wore these, I got a pair of just, I'd say medium weight Carhartt gloves. And I just cut the, the fingertips off at the last knuckle. I wanted that dexterity to be able to climb, feel the rock and also kind of coordinate with my phone. And I just, I just felt this. And at this point too, I mean, I probably had 80,000, 80,000 gain, 80,000 loss on the legs and, and around 150 miles. And I just, I just felt my legs wobbling and I just, I couldn't do it. And I just descended and I went around and there weren't a whole lot of decision points in the last 10 peaks where I had to make that. But it was clear to me that I was no longer taking the lines that were interesting or maybe a little fun, more fun. I was just trying to survive. I was just trying to, to get out in one piece. I was just trying to make it home. And there was one peak coming down the East Ridge from Mount Haig, which I think was peak 43 on the second to last day, was likely the most stressful peak I had the entire trip. I just hit my fourth cash point, which is down in the series of lakes near Mystic Lake, Island Lake. And I had a it's roughly 4,000 foot vertical direct climb to the summit. Gnarly bushwhack, which was good. And I mean, my I just got to a point where I could just keep going. Like my body hurt, but it, it was, it was, it would function. And I, if I was walk, walking through bushes and I got poked in the arm or scratched and my legs bleeding, like it's just a, it's just a, a flesh wound or whatever. And it's fine. And I could keep going. Like if I fell, I would just slip and like fall and brace myself with my hands. It's no big deal. And I got to the summit, which was non-technical, but then I had to descend the East Ridge and there was really no way around. I mean, it would have probably taken me upwards of a day and maybe upwards of 10,000 feet of vertical change to go around. And at this point, I was just so roasted physically. I just said, okay, I'll just try it. And it turned out to be this, probably the worst quality rock I had. I was on the entire trip. And anything you touched would just fall off. Nothing was solid. So I'm trying to grab this rock and not put any real pressure on it, but use, use it more as pressure points and stabilization rather than actually, because if you yank, it's just going to, it's just going to yank off with you and it's going to fall on your feet, on your legs, and you're going to have a bad time. So just this weird climbing, I wouldn't even call it climbing, but then your feet are on this 40 to 60 degree, it's, it's compact dirt. In the rock and also the dirt, there were ice lenses, just unpredictable everywhere. And, and on this compact dirt, if you slip, it's, it's essentially, it's a slope with marbles. I mean, there's, with scree, you can dig in the sides of your feet or heels and actually stop. With this compact dirt, if you start sliding, you're just going down. I mean, you can't, there's no, there's no way around it. And it just turned out to be this ultra stressful situation. And I made it through, but I was just not, not having a good time. 
I knew that would happen though. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go out on this project to be comfortable. I didn't go out on this project to be, because I knew I'd get a good night's sleep. You know, I'd, I'd have some fine cuisine to enjoy. I went out to really test myself and, and test where my, where my perceived physiological and, and psychological limitations were, where they are. And, and I wanted to see how the, the project itself was just a structural framework top 50 peaks. It's just a number top 50. I didn't matter what mounds they were. I only cared how they affected me, how the climb affected me. That's all that mattered. So being a little more than a month out of the experience, what will you say is the lasting impact that the uh, experience has on you and, and, and what you've learned? That's a good question. I don't have a very good answer. I mean, that's something that I am still, still trying to process. Mm-hmm. The, the trip was, went so far beyond anything I've experienced and what I could have anticipated it would be. It was, it was nothing short of soul stirring. And the one certainty I can say coming out of the trip is that if you asked me a year ago, you know, Brandon, what is, what is 2020 look like for you? I, you know, what, what, how, how do you want to spend your, your time, your energy and, and what, what are your goals look like? I would, I could have given you a laundry list of races, ultra marathons and, you know, things were contingent, some races contingent on others and, and lotteries and this and that. And as soon as I finished this project and up until now, those, the idea of participating in an organized event and like spending time to, to prepare and then execute, I mean, it no longer seems relevant to my life when in the future, when I spend a year planning or more for some event that I'm going to go out and, and really push and test myself. In the future, it will be adventure oriented. And I would also say that it will be long duration. I mean, the 200 miler that I was going to race would, would have taken me roughly three days. And in my mind, that's too short. I think really a week's too short. In two weeks, two weeks is a good amount of time. And the sky's the limit. You can do a lot in two weeks. So, so you're saying that organized events just are not going to organized events where a lot of logistics are handled and you have to show up and, and race, even if they're outdoors is not as much appealing to you. You want, you want the entire experience of, of, of being out there. I want the entire experience. I mean, there, there are some very enjoyable qualities to races, but this trip just illustrated to me, I mean, I don't feel creative when I'm racing. It's it's fairly mechanical. And this trip was incredibly creative, not just design like the idea itself, planning everything, planning the food, setting the caches, where to put the caches, all the gear, you know, and then actually being out there and then doing all of these 
fairly undocumented things. It was really for me, for me, at the heart of adventure and, and exploration, not only of the landscape, but of myself. And that's what I want to experience more of. And there's no, there's no one way to the top of a mountain. I mean, you can, there are so many different ways and you could just pick whatever you want. You don't have to be on a trail. You don't have to, you know, be on the the path of least resistance or even go with what you find online or summit post or mountain project. You can just, you can just be out there and, and experience the landscape in any way you want to. Mm. You know, man, we, we, we often feature lots of folks on this show that are just incredibly inspiring and, and then others that are incredibly relatable. You know, the inspiration are folks like, you know, Alex Honnold. It's, he's doing something you would never want to do, but it's obviously incredible to see. <laughs> and then you have other folks that are, um, you know, it's like, okay, you know, that's, that's a, that's a, just a person, just a, a guy or, 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 a, or a woman that just does this between work and, and I can do that too. I think you fall in the former, the the more like, holy crap, this is really inspiring. And so I love that you say that, that you, you, you know, people might not want to set out and do the highest fifties like you did and, and experience that exposure in, in that, that absolute primal, instinctive, adventurous side of themselves, but they might enjoy just as much going out and seeing the places that you were doing all that or, or going to look at El Cap and take pictures and walk around it. And they can they can get that sense of adventure and that that joy from that, that, that type one fun even from something like that. And uh, so I love that you mentioned that and that you can experience these same places just in totally different ways, but, but they fill us all in a different way. Um, what would you say now that this world has opened up to you in a larger sense, is there anything on the horizon that 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 excites you, or is it just too early to to even start thinking about that? I would say I'm still in a recovery phase. I mean, I I asked <laughs> I a lot. I asked a lot out of my my body and my mind, and I'm taking some time to to really recognize and appreciate that I have and as much as I've been reflecting on the trip that I just did I cannot help but to brainstorm ideas for the future and I haven't really locked anything in for to do that I mean certainly it's too early but whatever I do next I will definitely whatever I do next for a big project will be thinking I will be thinking outside of the box and and I'll try to express that creativity and and do something pretty unique that's really the 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 foundation for my forward for for my philosophy moving forward where can folks find you where can they find out more about this journey and and, and what you've done so I have an Instagram my Instagram is the wild Ned with underscores. So the underscore wild underscore Ned. And on my Instagram, I've actually been, since I got out about every other day, I've been doing a recap of each day, the, the distance I covered, the vertical gain and loss, and then 
a series of nine or 10 photos and videos with the description. And then also sort of what I kind of a snapshot is into what I encountered that day. So that would be, that would be the best method of, of trying to get a more formal story of the, the scenery, what I was climbing and what I was seeing. And I'm working on a trip report in tandem, but that is, that's another beast in and of itself. Yeah. So, you know, we, 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 hear from folks all the time saying, you know, writing the, writing the journey or writing a book or typing it out is almost harder than doing it. So, uh, good, good luck typing out the trip report and processing it and the pictures and all that. And also just congratulations on, uh, such an incredible adventure. Uh, very, very proud of you. Very excited. Uh, you know, this is not necessarily something I want to do, but, <laughs> I listening to you talk about it, it's it's um just very inspiring, man. I, I I really appreciate you telling us about this and I really think it was gosh, just such a unique, such a cool experience that you you can know that you know, you you might be one of one of a handful of people in the world that's experienced something quite like that or in the, in that way, that area especially. So yeah, congratulations, and I, I, uh, I'm excited for your time off to process it and for, uh, for your next projects. Thanks for joining us and ta- telling your story. Yeah, thank you, Mason. It's, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Absolutely. All right. Well, have a great afternoon and evening, and we'll talk soon. Have a good, have a good time off. <laughs> thank you. All right. All right. We'll see you. All right. See you. First of all. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>